Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. It was a different kind of Passover, to say the least. Um, I remember right when we sat down, Philip leaned over to me and he whispers, Hey, Thomas, I feel like something special is going to happen tonight. <laughs> I looked at him. I said, I doubt it. I was wrong. <laughs> Jesus got up from the table. He, he walked over and grabbed a basin of water and a towel. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, what's Jesus doing with the foot water? You know, I doubt he's going to wash somebody's feet. <laughs> I was wrong. He knelt down and began to wash Bartholomew's feet. Bart just sat there. He, uh, he didn't say anything, he didn't move. None of us did. Jesus finished and went on to James and Andrew and the rest of us. I remember at the time thinking, this is so strange, yet wonderful. And then I thought, I doubt anybody's gonna say anything right now. I was wrong. You know who broke the silence? Peter. No way you're going to wash our feet. I mean, that's what I told him. He could wash other people's feet, but he wasn't going to wash mine. I looked at him and I said, Jesus, you're not going to wash our feet. I mean, you're the king. And he looked at me and he said, well, then you can have nothing to do with me. And I'm like, ouch. Okay, wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my whole body if you have to. He looked at me and said, no, your feet will be fine, Peter. In the midst of him washing our feet, he teaches us servanthood. Then Jesus took some bread and some wine, he blessed it and he served it to us. He said it was uh, a new covenant with his blood. Then he said, um, tonight all of you will lose faith in me. I remember thinking right then, lose faith in you? Never. But I didn't say anything. I just sat there. I couldn't just sit there, I had to say something. So I looked at him and I said, Jesus, I love you, you can count on me. Everybody else may fall away, but I will not. You can count on me. He looked at me and he smiled and he said, Peter, you'll deny me three times for tomorrow morning. Ouch. The next thing I knew, we were wrapping things up and we were headed to the garden to pray. Good morning, brethren. Something else that occurred immediately after the Last Supper was that Jesus Christ prayed to the Father in the presence of the disciples. And that prayer was recorded for us and it's very important. It addresses many things, but we can find answers to very important questions. Like, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? To be sanctified in truth? Has God left us to ourselves with an idea or a message that we are supposed to pass on to others? Or is he involved, not only in that truth, but also in protecting us from being entrapped by the evil of this world? These are important questions. And not only these, but other questions can be answered and understood together with the meaning of our calling 
from the words of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, as he poured out his heart to God the Father in the prayer right after the, the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. We find that segment in John 17, verses 6 to 19. Again, the context is the context is of that of a sacrifice. It was just a short time before he was taken um, by the soldiers, very short before his sacrifice, before he died for us. And it was in the presence of his disciples. In the prayer, we pick up in the middle of it, he had just prayed about finishing his mission in a hostile world. And now he was directing his attention to the preparation for our mission in such a hostile world. So the context of at least this segment of the prayer was the inevitable conflict between his disciples and the world. In fact, at some point during the prayer, he said to God the Father, that he was praying not just for those who were present at that moment around him, but for all of us who would believe through their witness, their testimony, their word. So let's see what Jesus had to say and what it means for us today. We begin with verse 6 of John 17, which reads as follows. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So now you see that Jesus said to the Father that he has manifested his name to his disciples. You see, when God reveals his name, as he did with Moses long before, and through Moses to Israel, he also reveals his character and attributes. A name is very, very important, especially in that culture. In fact, I, the prophet Isaiah prophesied of a time when God's people would know his name, meaning, of course, the name of the one who would deliver Israel, the great I Am. But to know, for God's people to know the, the name of God meant more than just knowing what his name is, it meant knowing him and knowing him in a very close way. To have knowledge of the person, to have almost friendship in a way of that person. And of course, to sanctify his name was to demonstrate his holiness and his sacredness and the sacredness of the name that represents him. Verses 7 and 8. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. So Jesus was about to leave this world. He was confident, however, that his disciples would fulfill the mission that they had been called for. Now they said, he said, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. 
That implies that this was a process they have come to know. It was a process, a stage that had been reached in their spiritual development. Now, they were by all means, they were not perfect. In fact, shortly after they would abandon him, Peter would deny him. <coughs> but it was a phase, a stage that needed to occur, and they had come to that point. I find that very comforting because sometimes I look in a mirror and I realize that I'm far from where I should be. But then God's timing is perfect. And just like the disciples were far from being perfect, but they were in that phase, in that stage where they needed to be, they had come to know the things they needed to know. I think it's the same for us. God uses time to shape us and mold us. Jesus also said that the words that God had given to him, that God the Father had given to him, he had given to the disciples. So the words proceeded from the Father through Jesus Christ to his disciples. And they were to proceed through his disciples to the world. The other thing that Jesus said here is that the disciples received those words. They had accepted the words of truth as words that had come from God. They did not think of Jesus' preaching and teaching as just some other ideas. They saw the presence of God. What was accepted by the disciples was the revelation of the Father in Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate Word of God. And that's a very important point here. But let's go to verses 9 and 10. Jesus, praying to the Father, said, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Notice that Jesus said that he was not asking on behalf of the world. Jesus would not pray for the world in its hostility and in its unbelief. Now, not because he was not concerned about the world, or because the world was not covered by God's love or included in God's love, because earlier in chapter 3 and verse 16, there's a famous statement that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So it's not that God did not love the world, that Christ did not love the world, but it was because the world is not to be preserved in its rebellious sin or sanctified in its unbelief. But Jesus, rather than praying for the world in that state of unbelief and rebellion, Jesus was praying for the preservation and protection of his disciples. Notice he referred to them as those whom you have given me. That's very important. It's very important because it teaches us something essential. Jesus did not claim ownership of the disciples. That gives us a glimpse into the mind and the heart of Jesus. The disciples were from the Father. Jesus said, they are yours. 
And that teaches us, and it makes me think, how, how in our language, sometimes we just ignore the heart of Jesus Christ. Perhaps we don't mean anything bad with that, but think about it for a moment. How often have you heard yourself or other people talking about my church, my things, my projects, my plans, my programs, or our church, or our people, our programs. That would not be the language that Jesus would use. In praying to the Father, Jesus did not say, my church. He would refer to that as the Father's church. Not my people, but God's people. Not my things, but God's things. Not my plans, but God's plans. And brethren, this is not just semantics. I really wonder what the church of, of God, what the church of Jesus Christ would look like if all of us realize that it's not our church, but His church. And it's not about our plans and our programs, but what He is doing in and through the body of Christ. We seem to take ownership of things that don't belong to us. We go to church and we complain if a church is not enter entertaining us enough or if it doesn't satisfy our taste. But you know, let me, let me clarify one thing. The worship that we offer a church is not for each other. It's not for us. It's for God. And it's not about whether we like it, but it's about whether it praises God because it's offered to Him. We are not the intended audience. God is. We're worshiping Him. We're singing to Him. We're praying to Him. We're sharing His Word and listening to Him. It's a conversation that we have with God. And it's not about us. It's about Him. And we can see that in the heart of Jesus, even now, in a moment where He's actually facing his death, his imminent death. And I think for at least most of us, if not all of us, our mind would be all involved in ourselves. The heart of Jesus was different. Something for us to ponder, something for us to meditate on and to pay attention to. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. Notice Jesus say, saying that they themselves, meaning us, the disciples, are not in the world. As his disciples, we need to be in the world, yes, but not of the world. But we need to be in the world to carry out God's mission. Spreading the good news of redemption. Sharing that. Establishing the church and building the church. Or yet, better yet, contributing and sharing in the work that Jesus is doing to build his church. Since the world is hostile to God and his people, then Jesus prayed for our protection. 
That is that Jesus was about to die. His imminent departure here means his death and his resurrection and ascension to the Father. The separation from the disciples was a cause of concern for him, for the world was hostile to them as well. In the midst of an incredible trauma that was about to come upon him, in the midst of the expectation of a horrible, horrible time, a flagellation, a crucifixion, it was impending on him. And in that trauma, his care, the care of Jesus Christ, the attention of Jesus Christ was on protecting us, his disciples, and our peace. He wanted his disciples to have peace and to share in his joy. Also, notice here that he just doesn't just say, Father. He said, Holy Father. He kind of changed the way he addressed the Father. And I think it is because he asked that we may be kept in his holy name. It is the holiness of God that separates us from the world. It is not just an idea or a concept, but the very nature of God, the very holiness of God that is present in us that separate us from the world. The other thing that Jesus mentioned here is this prayer that God the Father would keep all of us in his name. A person's name at that time even much more so than today stood for the person themselves. It is by the power of his name, which also could be, we could say, by the power and the love of God, that he protects us from the sin and the enmity of the world. So when Jesus said, keep them in your name, he's saying basically, keep them in your communion, in that communion with you, in that fellowship with you that separates us from the rest of the world and protect us, protects us from the enmity of the world and from being entangled in the sin of the world. Why? That is what he said, that we may all be one, that our unity may be such that it follows after the pattern or the unity of the Father and the Son. that we should be one, just like they are one. Verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I was keeping them in your name. Keeping them in you, in other words. Keeping them in the Father. He kept them connected with God, protected in the power of his name. The name or power of God was a divine gift to Jesus' disciples. God's name is not a, a magical formula, however. We need to be careful that we don't make the mistake of thinking that his name is, is just like a magical formula that we can use to obtain or, 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 or be receiving that power or anything like that. 
but it represents the powerful and personal presence of God himself. That is very important. If we just could realize it, who, who is in us? We, we talk about receiving the Holy Spirit, but sometimes I don't think we realize what we're saying. Who is in us is God Almighty. Who is in us is the creator and sustainer of all that exists, of the whole universe. And so, why should we be surprised if Jesus talked about the powerful presence of God himself? And that protects us, guides us, it keeps us separate from the world even though we are in the world. And then he talks about the son of perdition. And just one comment I would like to make about that is that while every human has free moral agency and can make his or her own decision, God's sovereignty is still at work. In fact, it is in his sovereignty that God has decreed that we should make our choices and decisions. And they are true choices and true decisions. Judas was not forced to make the choices that he made. But God knew that he would. And God allowed it so the scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Notice that statement. Considering the circumstances in here, considering what Jesus was going through, and he knew exactly what he was going to experience in just a matter of hours, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. His joy. Brethren, he's talking about joy. He's about to face the capture, torture, crucifixion. But he's still talking about joy. What kind of joy is he talking about? And I believe and I'm fully convinced that the joy that was set before him that enabled him to endure the cross was the joy of your redemption. The joy that made it possible for him to, to endure the cross was the joy of all of us being redeemed and being brought in communion with them and with God the Father. The joy of knowing that evil and even death itself has been conquered and defeated by him. It is often the case in life that sorrow will strike. But then it, that sorrow is replaced with joy. Jesus' crucifixion was about to bring great sorrow to his disciples. But here we're reminded of the resurrection as well, of the triumph of life over death and of our redemption even from death. A good reason to rejoice, not only for ourselves, but for others as well. As we participate in that joy of Jesus Christ, we share in the joy of our brothers and sisters being partakers of that Redemption as well. Verses 14 to 16. I have given them your word, 
and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Notice that is repeated. That we are not of this world. We are hated by Satan and by the world because we are not part of it. You see, as we participate in the life of Jesus Christ, maybe not immediately, but in time, the lure of the world, the craving of lust, the deceitfulness of pride, they end up losing their appeal for us. We realize that it's just fake. It's not worth it. And our commitment is not to this world. In fact, it brings us to regard the things of this world to use the words that Paul himself used as rubbish, junk, trash. But that exposes the deception of the values of this world. Values that are given and fed to us as the ultimate answers to life, but they're a deception. They're worthless. And that worthlessness is exposed. And the world hates that. But we're not to be different just for the sake of being different, however. We're not even to concentrate on our differences, especially between each other. But we're to be like Jesus, imitating Him and following Him and His lead through the Holy Spirit. That is important, brethren, because sometimes we forget about following Jesus Christ or walking with Him, as He called us to do, because we're too busy looking at within the body of Christ and, and, and arguing about some petty differences between one another. And the more we look at ourselves and the more we look at in our differences, the more we forget to walk with Jesus. And that's not our calling. Our calling, as Jesus said, was to follow Him, not one another. To follow Him. He is the captain of our salvation. He is the head of the church. And we are to walk with Jesus in communion, in oneness, and leave the result of our lives up to God. Not in passivity, but in faith. Not being passive and, and, and maybe spiritually lazy, but in full trust, in the full faith, knowing that the outcome of our life is really in God's hands. None of us is wasted. Jesus also prayed to the Father and stated that He did not ask the Father to Take us out of the world. See, God's purpose is not to remove us from the world. And yes, His purpose is not to remove us from the dangers and the opposition that we find in this world. But it is to preserve us in the midst of that conflict. We are called in the middle of that conflict. Satan has always done all that he could to destroy us and to destroy the church. But brethren, be a good cheer because Jesus Christ has overcome all of that. And God's plan will absolutely prevail 
In fact, Scripture reminds us that not even the very gates of hell will ever prevail against the body of Christ, the church. We are safe in Christ. Finally, verses 17 to 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world for them. I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Notice that statement. Sanctify them in truth. If God has set apart or sanctified his people from the nations by giving them the law, and I'm referring to ancient Israel, how much more are the followers of Jesus set apart or sanctified by his coming as the Lord made flesh, by his incarnation, God himself in the flesh, reaching out to us, calling us, giving us fellowship with them. You see, from an Old Testament perspective, Jesus here treats his disciples as the true remnant of Israel. Or, in other words, the covenant community, the community of the new covenant. And you are part of that. The means of this sanctification is God's truth. That truth which is communicated in the word. And that word is both personal. The word of God is Jesus Christ himself. But also is something that is communicated and shared. So this is a prayer for holiness. As a resulting change in our hearts. Brought about by God's word. That brings also a different way of looking at life, a different way of living life, different values, and a radically different life. One interesting statement there also is that for their sake I sanctify myself. It refers to him being separated and dedicated to his mission. What was his mission? To die for us that we may be sanctified in truth. In him, in other words, for he is the truth, the way, and the life. We must pay great attention, brethren, to these words. And I would like to invite you to read them again and again. The whole prayer, not just this segment, the whole prayer. Ponder that. Meditate on that. Discuss it with God himself in prayer. We must pay great attention to these words because they are the words of someone who was about to die himself but demonstrates his deep concern for his disciples, for you, for us, and for our holiness and for our integrity because that is what he wants us to be, holy. Truth and the word here are not just ideas. I mentioned that before, but it, it needs to be repeated. They are to be embodied in the people of God. Just as God is holy, His people are to be holy as well. But holiness, however, 
is indeed an act of God. It is not something that we produce because we're not holy and we cannot be. But God is. And through his presence in us and through his work in us, he makes you, us, holy. It is an act of God setting us apart to be like him. So the main focus here in Jesus' prayer is actually mission. The mission of Jesus himself, as well as the mission entrusted to us by God, and in conducting that mission, Jesus knew that we're going to experience alienation from the world. And he prayed to the Father about that, to grant us that protection, as well as to be kept in his name meaning in the power of who God is and in the fellowship and communion that we have with Him. Because we concentrate on our differences, however, we tend to miss the amazing and the amazing pain, the horrible pain, I should say, of this hostile world that needs God's word so desperately. And that's another outcome of what I was saying before about us concentrating and bickering about petty differences between one another. We look at ourselves again and that's so wrong because our mission is to look at that pain, is to look at the agonizing state of this sinful world that needs God's word so desperately, that word that has been entrusted to us to share with that world. The heart of mission that Jesus calls us to have would lead us not to divide, not to look at differences, but to unite under his banner to fulfill the strategic calling of reaching out to the world and bring his word and his life to the dying world. Brethren, to follow Jesus means to be called to a mission that includes not only proclaiming his truth, but being willing to live and die for his truth. That is the meaning of being consecrated to God. And that is the meaning of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The question, are we really disciples of Jesus Christ? And are we really willing to live, and if necessary, even to die for that precious truth? God bless you. God, today we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask for healing. In a day where we are so connected to the world, set us apart. In a time of great unrest and uncertainty, we ask for holiness. So search our hearts, renew our minds, and help us love like you love us. Make us holy. Use us to do your will on this earth. God, today we ask that you would restore us Gather up the bits and pieces of our souls and mend them with your loving hand. Search out those parts that we try to hide from you. Today, God, we invite you in 
faith is in Jesus Christ. We trust you. May we be set apart for you. May we be holy. 